the mysterious vigilante is in the news again. A little more than two hours ago, in an 8th Avenue subway underpass, two men were shot. One died on the spot. The other managed to reach the street before he collapsed. He died shortly afterward in the hospital. Both had long criminal records. The vigilante himself may have been wounded. Good evening, Mr. Cursor. Or should I say, Mr. Vigilante. Welcome to Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If a man really wants to protect what's his, he has to do it for himself. Hosted by Arnie. You're cocked, locked, and ready to rock. I'll say. Stuart. Well, he did seem a bit odd. Not only odd, the guy is crazy. It's that simple. And Jacob. I admire you. I'm a real fan. These podcasts contain detailed plot spoilers and harsh language. You believe in Jesus? Yes, sir. Well, you're going to meet him. Listener discretion is advised. No judge, no jury, no appeal, and no deals. It's showtime. Today we're discussing Death Wish 4, The Crackdown. Starring Charles Bronson, Kay Lenz, John P. Ryan, Perry Lopez, Soon Tech O, George Dickerson, directed by J. Lee Thompson. You're not going to mention Danny Trejo? He's the unnamed nobody <laughs> in this one. Hello, hello. It looks like you're going to have a party tonight. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. And this is Stuart. Who the fuck am I? Jacob. Oh, I thought you were deaf. Mm. <laughs> Look, I was so happy to finally hear that line. I talked about with Death Wish 1 how there's this band, Charles Bronson, that used movie clips from all over the place, but used a lot from Death Wish. And that was, I've been waiting for this. When I heard that clip, I knew it was a Death Wish line. <laughs> we finally got it. <laughs> yeah, Bronson isn't like the other 80s, but they're getting him closer to the 80s. I do feel like they were working on trying to make him into another Arnold or Stallone or what have you here. I did go, he only made two movies in between Death Wish 3, Death Wish 4. It was kind of a tight turnaround. It was only two years between them. Well, he made an HBO drama in which he played a union boss fighting for coal miner rights. Did not watch that. Do not want to see that. <laughs> but I did see Murphy's Law. I rewatched that. Arnie, I think you mentioned that you had seen that back in the day. It was a modest hit taking from the, you know, Murphy's Law, anything that can go wrong will go wrong to this L.A. cop played by Charles Bronson. I will half endorse it. I will say this. It brings him in the 80s in a positive way. It's cartoonish action, but not as cartoonish as what we saw with Death Wish 3. And Bronson is actually kind of light and fun, something that I have not felt like he's captured at all in any of the past decade. He actually seems like he's having a good time in that movie. The ruinous element, I remembered it then, it's just as true now. He's partnered with this punk carjacker played by Kathleen Wilhoyt, who was Benny's mentally challenged life partner in L.A. Law. <laughs> and she was Lucy's even more annoying sister on Twin Peaks. She is kind of the shaggy do of this one. She has all of these really annoying 
non-offensive slurs like snot licking donkey fart and kiss my pantyhose sperm bank. She's saying these kinds of things throughout the entire movie. So if you can bear that, there's actually a lot of other characters that play off Bronson very well. Carrie Snodgrass as a deranged hit woman is actually pretty good in the movie. I, I, I would say I was surprised at how entertaining it was for a canon film made post-Death Wish 3. And he also made a terrible film called Assassination the last partnership he had with Jill Ireland, where she's the first lady, he's Secret Service, and there's a hit out on her. There's someone in the White House, I think it's the president, ends up wanting to kill her. So he's, <laughs> you know, they run off and fall in love. And it's a very canon movie. I mean, by that, I mean, it's completely illogical, loud, and poorly made. And a really bad note for Jill Ireland to go out on. I also did go back because I've been feeling like maybe the later period of Charles Bronson, not one to see. I went back and saw one of his first movies. House of Wax. He was actually in the 1953 Vincent Price horror movie, one of the first 3D movies as well. He's basically Vincent Price's goon, does not much other than like take off his shirt and kidnap people to melt them down in the wax museum. But it's kind of fun. I had a better time with it than I did with Death Wish 3. So if you want to see Bronson early in his career, still not looking like he has much to say or having a good time. Does he have the mustache? He does not have the mustache. Oh, then I'm already done. It's always weird when he doesn't have the mustache. (laughs) (laughs) It was a little weird. I think in Dirty Dozen, he doesn't have the mustache, and it's just not quite Charles Bronson. Yeah, he didn't have it in... Still, I think his best film is Hard Times. Yeah, that one I really do endorse. It was a really good film. It'll be hard for him to top that. Well, if you're looking at all these other movies, have you seen anything by J. Lee Thompson? Because this is a director I'm not familiar with. Oh, yes, you are. It's time for golden headphones for this guy. We've covered him a lot. Conquest of the Planet of the Apes, Battle of the Planet of the Apes, Happy Birthday to Me. He's made seven Bronson movies. He's made several canon films, including King Solomon's Mines. He actually had a legitimate career back in the 60s. He made Guns of Navarone and the original Cape Fear. Yeah, he's a big git and uh, a good friend of Bronson because they had the working relationship and they were shopping around for another director because Michael Winner... Well, he'd like you to believe that he was off busy making this murder mystery appointment with death. It's an Agatha Christie affair with Peter Ustinov and a bunch of B-level stars. He couldn't make the time to make Death Wish 4, but I don't think he was asked. I think that Bronson and everyone on set had real problems with him. And I think the tone of the last movie was not something that they wanted to repeat. I don't know if that was Winner. Look, Winner's done a lot of gross stuff with rape and women, but I don't know if the tone of three was his fault. I mean, that came from the script. I don't think he wrote that thing. It came from canon. It came from the fact that Golan and Globus really wanted a, a Rambo of their own. But here's the thing. At this point... Canon is overextended. They have 70 films in various states of production, <laughs> including Over the Top, which is way over budget, that Golan is directing himself. Masters of the Universe came out, and they spent a lot of money on that. And they just, they don't have the time to focus on Death Wish. They're treating this like money in the bank. They're like, you go do this, we'll stay out of this. And so the people that are making the creative choices said, you know what, we want to get back to the original. Everything I was reading behind the scenes, Jay Lee Thompson, this director, director, the producer they brought back on to shepherd this film, Charles Bronson himself said, there was never any better one than the first one. Let's try to make a movie like that. And they had several ideas that I think were kind of cool. They went back to the original author, Brian Garfield, and said, what do you got? We're not going to make your sequel novel, Death Sentence, but what else do you have? And he suggested putting Paul Kersey back in Arizona 
and partnering up with Jane Schill in that community and seeing if indeed there wasn't some crime problems there. And they thought really what he was advocating was that the lone gunman thing was played out. Bronson by himself was no fun to watch. He needed a partner in crime. And apparently Bronson nicked that idea. He was the star of this franchise. Nobody else was going to steal it from him. But I kind of like that idea. I kind of like that. I also like the idea that I read on IMDb that they tried to do, which was, and it seems very close to what they actually did, bring him back to L.A., but try to reconnect him with Jill Ireland. Again, it's his wife. He likes to star with her. And that is a unresolved plotline. It's the only woman in Paul Kiersey's life to not have died. I guess that's a little unfortunate phrasing on my part, as the reason they didn't do that is Jill Ireland was fighting breast cancer, a losing fight at the time. Well, she did beat it. She wrote a book called Life Wish, and that apparently the reason why they didn't go with that idea was that they were going to kill her character in it. And she said, I just spent all of this time battling breast cancer and writing a book on what it is to beat death. I'm not going to get killed. But yeah, this plot was crazy. It was that he would reconnect with her. They would go to a fast food restaurant and gunmen would come in to rob the place, usher everyone into the freezer and shoot everyone in the head, including Charles Bronson. He survives. He comes back <laughs> and he says on the grave, I promise you I'd never kill again. So he goes around catching all the gang members without killing them. Well, that's no fun. I mean, (laughs) four movies into Death Wish, that's not what you want. Yeah, I don't know what you'd call that, but Jill Ireland said no. So they nixed that. And they had one other idea. It was kind of a Day of the Jackal thing where an international terrorist would come to San Francisco and kill one of Paul's friends, a cousin, an aunt, a niece. I don't even know at this point. doesn't matter. And so it would be... Kind of like a a movie that Stallone and Antonio Banderas would make a decade later called Assassins, where (sighs) one hitman versus another. Mm, That one was not good. (laughs) Yeah, not a good movie. (laughs) Yeah, I don't know where they were at the script, but basically what they ended up deciding to do was kind of a classic idea. It's Yojimbo, basically. They went back to Kurosawa and the Spaghetti Western that stole from Yojimbo a fistful of dollars and said, isn't it fun when you have the hero pit two sides against one another and never fires a bullet. And so that's what they thought they could do. They could give Kersey a way of not killing anyone and making rival gangs kill one another. And of course, they got to be drug cartels because it's the Just Say No era, Pablo Escobar, Miami Vice, got to have cocaine in here. Hey, that worked very well for the 2002 Punisher film. I mean, I've seen this plot so many times as people rip off a fistful of dollars. Well, yeah, Yojimbo is one of my favorite movies. I did not think about that during this one. <laughs> oh, really? I guess I could kind of see it, but uh, no, that's such a better movie. Yeah, I'll, I'll go ahead and preface my review. This ain't Yojimbo. No, no. way. <laughs> it's not. It's definitely a Death Wish movie, but they rushed it. You know, they got the script done in March of 1987. It was out in theaters by November. You know, they had, I think, an $8 million budget. What they were finding at this point is that now that VHS was becoming a new way that people consume movies, people weren't going to see Bronson. They just, in the box office, this one didn't do well, but it rented well. So I think that's why we ultimately have a Death Wish 5. It's because his movies live on in home viewing, but he was no longer a marquee star. People did not go to see this movie in theaters. I remember it coming out, and I think I saw it on cable once. Yeah, what I read is this had a budget of $5 million, 
And Bronson's salary was $4 million. Mm. <laughs> So just so you know where the money went, it went into his pockets. This was a hefty payday. That meant 20% of the budget actually went to things like special effects and guns and <laughs> explosions. Oh, uh, there's one amazing special effect in this where you could see they had no money for it. We'll get there. That's the canon thing to do. I mean, that over the top, they paid, what, Stallone, like $12 million. They're like, here's a blank check. What do we have to make it out to? to get you to be in one of our films. Yeah, they were never very wise with money, and it's worth pointing out, canon films will go under more or less within the next 18 months of this movie coming out. Death Wish 5, while is tied to people that own canon films, is not a canon film. This is a film that they tried to make to save the studio, but could not. Yeah, this is definitely a canon film. This may be the most canon of canon films I've ever seen. Again, we've reviewed a number of them, Life Force, Superman 4, but I missed out on a lot of the most canon films like American Ninja and all the Chuck Norris stuff. When I see some of the effects and the action, quote-unquote, in this movie, it makes me realize that scene of... Weird Al in UHF doing the Rambo thing, it's not a parody. It's actually, he probably got Golan and Globus to direct that scene. Yeah, it uh, definitely does not have the budget that Death Wish 3 did. That they had, I mean, there's various reports about how much money they had, but they obviously had enough to blow up major buildings. And here, it's scaled down. It's also said they had to scale this action for what Bronson could do. He, at this point, is 66 years old. And I think you can tell. There's no giggler to chase here. <laughs> anyway, speaking of giggles, Arnie, why don't you give him the plot? We'll get into the crackdown. Charles Bronson's character, Paul Kersey, is living in L.A. and running an architectural consulting firm. He's just counting the days till the gold watch, right? I mean... But he's dating newspaper reporter Karen Sheldon, played by Kay Lenz. The two have been together for some time, and Karen is pressuring Paul for marriage. And there's no reason they shouldn't be, as Paul not only loves Karen, but also Karen's teenage daughter, Erica, played by Vacation's first Audrey, Dana Barron. I recognized her immediately. I'm like, oh my god, she must be a major part of this movie. Well, as much as any family member of a Charles Bronson character is. I should have known. Because when out on a date one night, Erica is given some crack cocaine by dealer Jojo Ross, played by MLB's Hector Mercado. She ODs and dies. This brings out Paul's vigilante side, which has been dormant for about two years. He goes out, hunts, and kills Jojo. This action gets the attention of newspaper publisher Nathan White, played by John P. Ryan. White is concerned about the drugs in L.A. and wants Paul to hunt down and kill the dealers. There are two major players in the L.A. drug trade. First is a gang run by Ed Zacharias, played by Perry Lopez. The other is a gang run by the Romero brothers. Paul has seen the movie Yo Jimbo, I guess, as he does some hits that pits the two gangs against each other. Zacharias sees through this plot, but when he goes to get help from the Romero brothers, Paul kills one of the brothers, starting an all-out gang war. Meanwhile, the police are looking into Paul's activities, spurred on by the shooting of Jojo. Detectives Phil Nozaki, played by Soon Teko, and Detective Sid Reiner, played by George Dickerson, are pretty sure Paul's the vigilante they're looking for. But Nozaki is on Zachariah's payroll, so he goes to kill Paul. Paul shoots and kills Nozaki, and now Nozaki's partner Sid is out for blood. But with Zacharias and the Romero brothers dead, Paul goes to see White again, only to find out he's been double-crossed. The real Nathan White was out of the country. The person pretending to be Nathan White was a third drug lord. 
He used Paul so that now he's the only major dealer in the L.A. area. And Paul's work done, fake Nathan White is trying to kill Paul. Yeah, I don't think we ever get a name for this guy. No, I'm. he's credited as Nathan White, even though he's not Nathan White. Yeah, very confusing. That's true. I never realized that. I always called him Nathan in my notes. Yeah. <laughs> he also kidnaps Karen to use as a hostage. So Paul hunts down fake White and kills many of fake White's goons. But fake White shoots and kills Karen. So Paul blows fake White up with a grenade launcher. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was enjoyable. They realized the best part of Death Wish 3 and just copied it. Yeah, we need to go out in a bang. All three drug dealers dead. Paul is confronted by Detective Sid, who tries to arrest Paul. But distraught over Karen's death, Paul just walks away. And Sid just watches him go as sad saxophone plays and credits roll. Oh, sad, sad saxophone. I'm going to just go ahead and say it. We've had some credible people tackle the soundtrack. I mean, Herbie Hancock, Jimmy Page. These are Bronson's stepsons. And one of them is struggling with drug addiction. They gave him this assignment to help him kick his demons. Valentin McCallum and Paul McCallum are partnering with the guy that wrote the love theme from Murphy's Law that Kate Wilholt sang. <laughs> And they are just very 80s cheesing it up right here at the beginning with this hot, hot saxophone. It's too bad. It's too bad we don't have credible musicians. Most of this music isn't great. There's some synth stuff like towards the end during the climax that I was digging. But I don't know if I want Jimmy Page back, but yeah, not great. Well, a lot of this score was not custom written for this. It goes uncredited. But the scores for Missing in Action and Invasion USA were used because the canon wanted more, quote, muscular sounding music than what the person composing here did. So if you're liking some of those bits, it might very well be from a different movie. (laughs) (laughs) I guess I'll have to watch those films. Not going to happen anytime soon. But what I'll say for Death Wish 4, The Crackdown, I think the best scene we've seen in any of these Death Wish films is this opening. I guess it's a dream, I, or maybe Paul's just thinking back about some vigilante work he did as he's sleeping, but I really liked how this was shot. I could feel that this is a different director. The way, you know, you get the woman in the car, and she looks up, and there's one guy with a nylon pulled over his head, and then she looks down, she tries to start that car, it won't, she looks up, there's a second one. It, it's got this horror slasher vibe that really worked. Yeah, I agree. This is my favorite scene of any Death Wish movie so far, and... Yeah, it's scary. It's legitimately scary. I'll not go that far as saying legitimately scary. To a degree, the way the people just popped up there, I think I actually would have been more creeped out if they kept walking in. The fact that they just appeared had me actually laughing, wondering if she's going to look up and there's going to be six and then 12. You know, it reminds me of the I tell two people and they tell two people the way they just kept popping up. And then I had heard ahead of time that this was a... Death Wish, you know, it didn't have the same director. I wasn't expecting any sexual assaults. I'd read there were no sexual assaults. And so when they go to attack her, I'm thinking murder, robbery. No, it's a planned rape, but Paul's going to come in to save the day. Yeah, they get some good punches in on there. I mean, it's pretty bloody. Yeah, this is a surprise, right? We think Death Wish... 
the second we see this well-dressed woman walking in a dark underground parking garage, we think we know where this is going. It is unfortunate it's a dream, right? I really like the scene, but it would play better if this was real. That if Paul actually did save this woman from an attack, I think dramatically would be a great way to start. It would have been the first time in a Death Wish film where Paul is just still vigilanteing. Every time we see some woman has to get murdered, raped, whatever, for him to get back in the game. I thought, oh, so he's just, he's still doing it. He's back in L.A. and still doing it. And then we have that Empire Strikes Back scene where he kills one of the bad guys, he flips over, and he sees himself. Just like Luke saw himself in Vader. I'm glad that it was a dream because I wondered why he was just fucking with the one guy. You know, he kills two, one shot each, bam, bam. And the third guy, he's just toying with. I'm like, that's not Paul's M.O. Why would he do that? He's closing the garage door. There is the good line, who the fuck are you? Death. And he does kill the guy, and it is Paul himself. This is a dream. I think I would have both liked it better if this was just an action-oriented start to the movie, that you could do this pre-credits, you know? You just start with this and then have the credits roll as you see him go through a day at the architecture firm but secondly i never see paul have an internal conflict i don't see this as a haunted man who is disturbed by his vigilante actions over the past decades so why is this dream even here this luke skywalker moment as you call it yeah here's the one thing i'll give for the dream for justifying it as a dream it did make me think, oh, we're going to explore Paul's psyche. Does he actually have a death wish? Is that what this dream signifies? But I agree, it doesn't play out. We're never really going to come back to this moment where he reflects on what he's doing. I can tell you why it's here. It was in a different script entirely, and the director read it and said, oh, I really like this. We're going to do this scene. But <laughs> it was intended for an entirely different storyline. But it's, again, I think a highlight. I, there's a reason to retain it. And yes, I think it kicks things off in a great way. I think we're supposed to think that part three never happened, right? He's back in LA with his architecture firm dating a woman who works for a newspaper. It feels very part two. Yeah. And it will be mentioned later that it's been two years since those killings. I think that that New York affair with the rocket launchers never occurred. Well, it's so hard to say. I did read somewhere, probably Wiki or IMDb again, that they wanted to make a direct sequel to two. I don't know why they wouldn't want to include three as part of the canon, pardon the pun. Because they're embarrassed by it. Because while Golan Globus made money off of it, the people that made the film realized we can't make another ridiculous film like this. We want to have some dignity. No, they made it exactly another ridiculous film like that one when you get to the rocket launcher. And so to me, maybe they don't track it to the vigilante. Maybe he was always living in L.A., but he traveled to New York to see his friend Charlie, and now he's back in L.A. hiding out after blowing up the ghetto there. So, But he's been dating a woman. and For two years, I think it says. Yeah, I, I get stability. I get the sense that he has a really nice house now. Like It's an upgrade from that the hacienda that he had in part two. I think that he is well-adjusted. I don't think that he is haunted. I think that he is seeing the life that he could have with this new woman and her daughter and is kind of mentoring her that he will even have the line i feel like her like i do my own daughter and i don't think this wife knows what happened to his original daughter she thinks that's cute that is a little bit odd i would hope that if they were seriously considering marriage he'd be like by the way my wife and daughter were killed by gangland violence 
ideally, I believe in complete honesty in a marriage, and it should possibly be followed up with a hard conversation of, and I went a little bit nuts and killed everyone in revenge, and then did that twice more in sequels. But even if you leave that part out, if you're like, yeah, I'm not going to share everything the fact that you had a wife and daughter who were killed probably worth mentioning especially since everybody he ever gets involved with does seem to end up dead as will be the case for both of these people i was surprised to see audrey from vacation here i didn't know that she'd ever really acted again other than in cousin eddie's vacation part two they didn't even bring her back for other vacations no i mean but that's the running gag there is they constantly recast audrey and rusty there they did bring her back for christmas vacation to cousin eddie's island adventure (laughs) oh wow she had time in her schedule for that huh i actually feel like this is kind of a nice sweet family it feels like the setup for part two that karen is a journalist she's covering stories she even has a story about women that are brutalized and that paul reads it endorses that i think that they intended in the original version of this script to have her much more investigating the vigilante work that paul is doing on the sly oh they totally drop her investigation she'll start one and then it never comes back until the very end yeah they cut her out of the film but that wasn't the intention and they had an entirely different ending for her as well that's kind of amazing i wonder if they should have tried and filmed it but we'll get there when we get there but here at the beginning i think we all know when erica's going out with her preppy boyfriend and they're lighting up joints in his sports car where this is going oh as soon as i saw him driving an irock z i just knew they were both pegged for death and it's funny because i just rewatched like the night before watching this i rewatched eddie murphy's raw and he's talking about white guys pulling up in their irocks and i'm like oh boy this is trouble yeah see i thought it'd be about paul going after this boyfriend this boyfriend's gonna get taken out very quickly as well as erica yeah it's confusing there are two drug dealers on the santa monica pier i think that's where they're filming this i was wondering i'm like oh man that's a cool arcade but no listing in imdb where that was filmed i'm pretty sure i know that location pretty well and i did not think we'd be getting a another Star Trek callback, but (laughs) the Black Vulcan from Voyager is here dealing drugs as Jesse, and his friend Jojo slips Erica off to the side, and as a present, shh, don't tell your boyfriend, I got you some crack. Now, Arnie, you pointed last week, this is called The Crackdown. Crack was going to be a big part of this storyline. They changed that. In middle America, where people pay top ticket value to see Bronson in theaters, they didn't know what crack was in 1985. So they ended up just changing it all back to cocaine. But it's clearly crack rock that she is given. She is not given the powdery cocaine substance. And this was 87. I think crack was starting to make the rounds at that point. It had been out for a year in major cities. I was living in Florida at this time, and I knew what a crack pipe looked like. Do they give her a crack pipe behind, like, the ski ball to smoke this? Because it's much harder to do crack than if you just have, like, powdered cocaine. Yeah, I mean, how did she do it? I mean, we don't even know. Like, did she know she's supposed to smoke it? Did she, like, eat it like Pop <laughs> Maybe that's why she ends up dead. I had to look this up because... When I see crack users on television, and I actually did work at a drug rehab center for a while, so the crack addicts I've seen are usually in pretty poor shape. So I think that crack can't kill them, because if so, these people would all be dead. I had to look. You can indeed 
have heart problems from crack. Sometimes the very first time you use crack, it can be enough to overstimulate your heart and kill you. And that's what they always say in the Just Say No ads, is doing crack just once could be enough to kill you. And sure enough, Erica finds that out. And it's got to be your first time because you don't keep giving free tastes of crack away for free. That's a one-time thing to get you hooked. Right. And we're even going to get that moment. Karen is, of course, going to rush through the hospital to see her daughter flatline and she's immediately going to request that this become some kind of series that she's going to profile in the newspaper even though her boss is convinced everyone is already on drugs and doesn't want to read about it he's going to let her do this she has a scene in the morgue where she goes and sees all the ways that you can die from (laughs) i'm cracking up it's like this one had a crack pipe blow up in his face (laughs) yeah freebasing yeah that's actually how i heard about crack was that yeah richard Pryor had famously burned himself up in a freebasing accident i think that was my first exposure so this is so after school special like it just keeps getting worse and worse until you have a 13 year old prostitute with her throat slashed and it's so quite obviously not a dead body it is some young actress who didn't get the role on Little House, and so now she's playing dead 13-year-old throat-slit prostitute that I am laughing. And after-school special is exactly the words that came to mind when they're at the funeral of Erica after that heart-wrenching flatline scene that I don't know how ER can keep up with doctor (laughs) scenes like this. But at the funeral, in the car, driving away from burying her daughter, Paul is going to give this speech to... Karen about you write about it you go do that these lines like it's the drug's fault not yours no one cares about a drug story the new American way of life yeah these things are really feeling exactly ABC after school special like one of the movies they used to make us watch in health class so you don't screw up your life (laughs) like the one where Charlie Sheen killed himself yeah I I agreed but I will say this as unsophisticated as this movie is. It does feel like it was written by and made for 12-year-olds. I do feel like the tone is more dramatically oriented. That this is obviously less hyperbolic than Death Wish 3. The villains, the situations, they're not as campy. I don't know. I mean, when they go to kill Jojo, I think there's some camp about bumper car death. Again, I'm going to credit, I guess... Thompson for this, the director, there is some interesting editing in this film, the way it cuts back and forth between JoJo and the bumper cars. We'll see it again later with the skating rink. Again, I don't know if it signifies anything, but it's interesting to look at. Yeah, he's a talented filmmaker, and he knows that he's on the skids. This director, no, I mean, he admits, I was selling out at this point. I used to make good films, but I still know how to make film, and you can see that craft here. This is easily the best-made Death Wish movie since the first one. I'll say it's competently made. It has the production values of an episode of Miami Vice, which is not a bad thing. Miami Vice was a very slick show. They're doing a lot with very little money left over from Charles Bronson's salary. They're doing so much more than having him walk around Skid Row from two. Yeah, that one remains for me the, yeah, just unpleasant. But when the boyfriend goes to confront JoJo and he's just the stupidest guy ever. I'm going to go tell the cops about you. Like, JoJo's not going to kill him when the answer is do time or cut a guy. I mean, the answer is you cut the guy. But I think that there is some camp in that, yes, we're cutting between bumper cars. I think there's going to be a gunshot because to me, the bumper cars bumping together sound like you could hide a gunshot in that. But no, instead, Paul's going to chase him up on the roof. And I never even thought about the top of bumper cars acting like the 
the third rail on a subway and you can fry a guy. Yeah, I guess that's why they intercut with those bumper cars to remind you of that electricity. I was expecting Randy or Jojo or someone to get like their head smashed between two of the bumper cars. Again, the last movie prepped you for a much more gonzo hyper-violent experience than that what they're trying to do here. They are trying to get back, I mean, in a very unsophisticated way, they are trying to get back to the spirit of that first film here. And so it's kind of a strange dovetail that none of this really is a setup for the real plot that kicks in about 20 minutes in. Yeah, none of this actually matters. You, I guess some of it plays into the plot later when Karen gets kidnapped, but you could have cut all this and started when Paul comes home and there's a note for him. I know who you are. That would have been a really interesting way to go because every Death Wish film even three, albeit tenuous, has had Paul avenging the loss of a loved one. I prefer it when it's a family member or a nearly foster daughter than, hey, a guy I kind of served in Korea with. But it's always been death that incites him to murder. To have him be blackmailed into it would have been a really nice twist on the formula by this point. By the same token, it is a formula for a reason. So I think we kill that person so that we have sparked that rage in him. And this is, again, after school special, take a drink every time we say it, but you have to show the dangers of drugs to show why he's going out there killing because drugs are killers themselves. Otherwise, you could be thinking that this is an overly harsh punishment for a crime that is victimless. Yeah, well, then maybe they should have shown Emily trying to smoke the crack rock. I I hear, get what you're saying. Because we had a scene with her being cute with Paul, we're to understand that he's at a loss, that we felt the loss, but we didn't see the impact of drugs. She seemed like a straight-laced kid that had one bad night with crack rocks. And- <laughs> Any night with Crack Rock is probably a bad night. (laughs) Probably so. But anyway, my point is, I think Jacob's right. We could have just started here with the idea that, okay, you now need to clean up the streets. These are the real killers. If you want to end crime, if you want to be Mr. Vigilante, the thing to do is to go after cocaine dealers. And there's two of them in Southern California. I didn't know it was just two syndicates. Well, no, they're for 90%. There may be a lot lot of little smaller independent dealers, but 90% come from two main guys. Yeah, it's like clothing. If you take out Walmart and Amazon, then you can clean up the rest easily enough. But I was a little bit confused because he gets this from Mr. White, and he says he's a newspaper publisher. So I'm like, is this Karen's boss? That's what I was thinking. (laughs) Is that not supposed to be who he is? I think in earlier drafts, they had those ties more closely. And maybe she was even the one to figure out the deception that we're going to find out at Act 3. But Well, that we're going to get confirmed. Come on, this didn't fool anyone, did it? It fooled me. I did not. I I knew that he was wearing a fake mustache, but I knew I was watching a canon film. So I just (laughs) thought they made him wear a cheap fake mustache. And I've seen Chinatown, and this set up, without spoiling too much about what's a really good movie about South L.A., yes, that begins with someone impersonating someone else to hire the help of a private investigator. It plays very similar. The thing that got me is he leaves that note under Paul's door, I know who you are. And then as soon as Paul gets that note, 
He immediately calls him on the phone. I'm like, couldn't you have just called him on the phone and said, hey, I know who you are? What was with the dramatics of the notes? Yeah. And then sending a limo immediately, too. I, obviously, Paul is under constant surveillance by Mr. White, no matter what else is going on. Paul is the worst vigilante. Like, he is constantly getting caught. Some punk kid at the bumper cars, like, got part of his license plate number and gave it to the cops. Like, Paul doesn't even do any detective work in this film. He just gets a whole dossier from... Nathan White telling him who to go after. That's my biggest ding, is that unfortunately, it'd be one thing if he was hired for this job, now go to work, but it's not just that. Here's a list of everyone involved. And I'm going to give you weapons, I'm going to give you money, like he does, he has to do nothing but pull that trigger. I mean, a list, that makes it feel like a task, a chore, like you want this to be a participant. You want him to figure out things, to trail people, to follow leads, red herrings, what have you. There's nothing to figure out. He has it all mapped out for him, and he just literally has to go scene by scene and very uncreatively take these people out. Well, what's so jolting, like, yeah, at one point he'll disguise himself as, I don't know, one of the caterers? A bartender. Barback, yeah. But I'm wondering, like, how does he become a bartender? How, how did he get in there? How did he infiltrate this place? How does he expect no one to recognize him even though he doesn't disguise himself he just keeps showing up in different roles and people even say don't you look familiar don't i know you he uses the name paul kimball which is the same alias he did use in death wish 2 so it reminds me of the incredible hulk where every town david went to he was david baxter david Binner, anything with the same last <laughs> initial, but a different last name here. Paul Kimball back again. I'll just say it. Charles Bronson is the least interesting thing in these Death Wish films, I feel. Like, maybe that first one, he had some interesting moments written in the script, and he, he pulled off some acting. But I feel like since two, I might like some of the deaths going on, some of the crazy gonzo stuff going on around him, but he's just not that interesting. You talk about Dolph Lundgren and the Punisher dolphin that up. I feel like that's what Chuck Bronson's doing in these later Death Wish films. Yeah, I have to agree, and I think it's even more hampered because of the action, because he is a fit, but still a 66-year-old man who didn't want to use a stuntman on set. They tailored this action for what he was capable of doing. So it's things like, yeah, okay, well... Uh, help us move this dead body. Now pick up a crowbar and knock the guy out and run out the front door. I mean, there are no spectacular action scenes for much of this movie. It's literally him just pointing and shooting a gun and sometimes running. I know that people involved in the film said he didn't use a stuntman. I think they're lying to save a little bit of the ego because there's a couple of times, anytime he throws a punch, you could tell it's him. But there's a scene later on where he's fighting a guy and gets knocked down and they do a weird jump cut before you get to see a person fall down. You don't have a 66-year-old man fall down like that. He could break a hip. That could be a permanent thing. <laughs> you know, I did say I like some of the editing in this film, but there are other times where they do not establish things. Like, he's going to go into a video rental store... And you never see, like, below mid-forearm, and all of a sudden you find out maybe he's carrying a suitcase with an Uzi, or maybe that was just <laughs> sitting on a table waiting for him. I had to rewind it and watch. You never see if he brought that gun in there. I did not know they make silencers for Uzis, too. I mean... They don't. <laughs> that seems... Why would you want to be quiet if you're shooting everyone? I just... <laughs> 
it seems like a waste, but I don't know. It's, it is kind of fun in its canon way. Once the killing comes, when you accept the premise that this is Death Wish, and it's feeling more like a Bond movie than Death Wish at this point, or maybe Miami Vice. But when we do get scenes like, let me give you my latest vintage of wine. Oh, it's a bomb. <laughs> okay. That we got to talk about that explosion. Cause I don't know <laughs> what happened there. Like you, you get Danny Trejo, like thinking he recognizes Paul there. I think he's our Jeff Goldblum of the, the most famous face for a thug in this one anyway. Yes. But Paul has, yeah, explosive wine bottles and he sets it on the table when that thing goes off first of all it just looks like they put some flames like in front of the camera but there are like two dummies there are three people at the table when that thing blows up there are like two dummies sitting there i don't know why you don't see them explode (laughs) yeah this is seriously a naked gun level explosion effect here it is so awful that i'm just i'm dumbfounded i'm like wow i thought three was pretty cheesy with its action and its explosions but this this is sesame street level effects it's so unbelievable but it is interesting to see danny trejo in an early role i think this is maybe his third or fourth screen appearance ever he looks very different i hadn't seen his name in the credits i wouldn't have realized it was danny trejo I recognized the smile, and I recognized the mustache, and I recognized him when he was standing behind Zacharias. And I'm like, oh my god, it's Danny Trejo back there! But then this scene here where he sits down and has the wine, I would definitely have recognized the voice. But he does look completely different, and, you know, he's out of prison by this point by a good decade, but... Because he wears suits all the time, you don't see any of the trademark tattoos. My real question was, much like rings on a tree when you cut it down, could I trace Danny Trejo's tattoos through time? But I don't get any ink shown here. No, there's not much time to dwell on anybody, really. The problem is, I like this premise. I like the idea that Bronson supposedly is going to kill someone from one side and then make the other side uh, suspect that it was done by them. I think that's fun. That's a classic premise. But we're introduced characters in the same scene that they die and there's no real frame-up job for making the other side look guilty it all feels like a video game mission like i started writing down the characters max green video rental store and i I do love how canon is so shameless in the self-promotion i think every poster is a canon film i saw break in they had a texas chainsaw massacre 2 cut out there i saw texas chainsaw massacre 2 but i definitely saw a couple other things i don't think they did witness or heartburn no they didn't do heartburn (laughs) (laughs) but it feels just like a video game it's like here's the dossier here's who this person is and here's where they hang out now go kill them Again, there's lip service that these two sides are, like, suspecting each other, but I never feel like there's a big buildup for a big gang war later on. I mean, when we get that, it's very sparse. They are not ready for war. They just want to talk some more. The two sides are not equally built up either. We have Ed Zacharias, who has two first names the way I see it, Ed and Zach, and we focus mostly on him. Yeah, his birthday. He's he's blowing out nipple candles. Oh, God, I asked Marjorie if I could have that cake for my birthday next year. <laughs> That was awesome. But we see him kill a guy who he's smart enough to know is skimming off of him. We see Zacharias is actually smart enough to see through ruses. As I mentioned in the plot summary, he's going to get that somebody's setting them up. The Romeros, 
they're not as well-known actors. There's two of them, and we don't see much of their inside operation. We don't follow them, and they're the dumb ones who believe Zacharias is actually killing their men. I think they're Golan and Globus. I actually think that this is the filmmakers <laughs> slipping a parody of the people that run canon films. Some incompetent people that are taking over a drug empire and don't know what they're doing. Yeah. <laughs> But, you know, the closest they have to a good character, I think, is when they get to Frank Boggs, who is their, supposedly is the Romero's best hitman. Number one hitman. I wish, I wish we got to see it. Yeah, I, I agree. We should have played with this longer. I also wish we got to hear him sing because they call out his baritone voice. I thought he was totally going to sing. Yeah, they should have used him better. And really, almost everyone should have more in this movie, but it's very efficiently cut. It's the longest Death Wish movie there is, but it's, I also think, the best paced. I think Mm. that it actually zips through faster than certainly two. I'll agree it's faster than two, but because what we are seeing is so repetitive, I guess, is the problem. It feels monotonous in that we're just seeing these people come on screen to die. And other than Danny Trejo, we don't know who they are. I'll agree that Frank Boggs gets one of the more inventive ones because he's arguing with his girlfriend and they're having kind of this fun banter Mm -hmm. and Paul's in his apartment. And this is the fight where somebody gets knocked down. Maybe it's Bronson. Maybe it's a stunt double, but somebody gets knocked down. And then there's the... I wish he'd just drop dead as Boggs lands on the hood of the car. Or that dummy does. Yeah, another great (laughs) dummy off the roof. I did notice the extra 10 minutes. (laughs) All the other death wishes of, I think a couple of them were under 90 minutes, but I'm like, okay, what do they got in this that's going to require 10 more minutes? And it's the fact, it could have been 90 minutes because, yeah, we're just going to introduce random people. Here's Max Green. Here's Frank Boggs. And you could have as many as these kill scenes as you want. They could have made this two and a half hours just to add more gang members, or they could have cut 10 minutes very easily. Again, this is going down very easy like Death Wish 3, but this could have been a much better film. Yeah. You, it makes you wish, because the things that are right about this are in play, that they tried harder to make a better movie. This is still, unfortunately, a B-movie. It's just directed by more professional filmmakers. I mean, that's what I'm getting, is that I'm really liking this tracking shot. This director seems to get a better sense of tone. No, we're not going to go as crazy as Winner did, and we're not going to glorify rape. But there are still major lags and major problems in the series, I think that's just going to be with us here. I think that we're just seeing a formula Death Wish movie. My argument is we're seeing a better told one than we have gotten the last couple installments. I have to disagree because there's no escalation and there's no sense of danger. While I'll... Yes, there's a tracking shot here and a well-framed shot there. The lack of budget harms any time the action is supposed to occur. And I got really bored and I kept checking the timer about that extra 10 minutes because how many people is he going to kill? I wish we got better a sense of the fact that what he's doing is turning the gangs against each other and he has to keep doing the things he's doing. By the time he's infiltrating a drug den with a major wily coyote strap of dynamite i'm like how much killing is he going to do and what exactly is he accomplishing how is he finding these places i mean he met with mr white in a movie theater briefly yeah he's hiding all his notes and his blueprints so the cops can't find it that's really frustrating that again it was all laid out for him he's not doing anything again you wonder if they had written it 
for Bronson to be more of a detective if we would have believed it, though. I mean, that's the problem is that if, if, if what Jacob is saying is true, and I think it is, Bronson's the biggest deficit here. You have to tailor the movie to what he's doing. So we have, yeah, a 66-year-old man who's just not physical anymore, taking the lion's share of the budget with him home, and so they have to cobble together some low-rent action scenes that... Yeah, they just aren't that exciting. But I think there's surprise here. I did not anticipate that the cops that are chasing him, or at least one of them, is on the payrolls of the bad guy. That was a nice twist. And I think this escalates the action here. The problem is they don't do much with it. But the fact that Paul is going to kill a cop who people don't know he's dirty, his partner doesn't know he's dirty, like that is really putting Paul in danger. That He's not just a vigilante, now he's a cop killer. And something could have been done with that really interesting I feel like with a lot of things in this movie it just kind of gets dropped and moves on yeah he just shoots through some blueprints you have a a nice stare down where it's after hours we could have a really cool there's all these models around I always love it when models get destroyed we have all (laughs) these architectural designs lying around blow them up let's see that go up but no it's a very simple Bronson shoots first yeah, later on, there's some popcorn that blows up, and I was glad they did that. I saw the popcorn set up. I'm like, you better blow up that popcorn, <laughs> otherwise it is completely in frame for no reason. But here, I like what they do to build up the cop being crooked, because he's meeting with Zacharias. He's double-crossing the place and saying, I know who the guy is. Zacharias is saying, kill him. He's like, that's not what I do. But he comes over that moral quandary, and he goes to kill Paul. I wish they'd done more with Sid coming after him. You could have had this wonderful three-way kind of thing, similar to what they did in part two, where the cop came after Paul while Paul was going after the arms deal. But instead, this is just going to lead to a unfulfilling denouement. And so any tension that I might have felt is over so quickly. It's just there's way too many faceless gangsters being killed meaninglessly. I found this entire part Until Paul gets the sniper rifle up at the oil field, I found it to be very just overlong and monotonous, and I was bored as hell. I think you can make that case for probably any death wish, honestly. They're all monotonous. By design, it is about someone with the never-ending impulse to go out there and outlaw justice. The first one stands alone. You, I believe any of the generalizations come to and on. When I think of the first one and the moral quandaries there, I just, I gotta leave that out of it. I think even the first one, though it does it the best, it didn't, at least for me, and I, I expressed this during that show, it didn't get into it as deep as I felt that the material deserved. It kind of just pulls back and, hey, let's shoot thugs instead. Yeah, and you don't have the actor for it. Again, I wonder about Bruce. I keep thinking about this remake, and I'm like, well, Bruce is a better actor than Charles Bronson on his best day but I haven't seen a good day (laughs) he hasn't had a best day in a good long while it's been a good day for his acting career to die hard (laughs) several times in the last several decades and I just don't know if Bruce is going to be better than Bronson but that's a real opportunity for the reboot to really sell us on the drama to give us a character who can internalize all this anguish and give us a dramatic performance We get what we get with Bronson and it's going to feel monotonous because he couldn't escalate it even if they had written it. And I think there was an attempt in early drafts to do that. And they just, they backed away from that. They realized he's going to do what he's going to do. 
I also understand that Bronson was pretty angry throughout this set. He was constantly asking for rewrites. He was constantly angry at the director. And just, I think things were going on personally. His wife was ill. He just was not happy on this set. And it, it, it comes through. Uh, yet again, I feel compared to Murphy's Law, which he made with this director the year before, he had a lot more fun on that set than he seems to be having here. Yeah. I mean, what's weird is he had said in some interviews, Death Wish 3 was his favorite of the Death Wish series. And yet he seems to hate all of them. He seems to hate the experience of all of them. None of them were really films he wanted to do beyond the glorious paychecks. Yeah. The screenwriter even said that he thought that Bronson might have senility or Alzheimer's or something. Which he would end up having, yeah. Yeah, he would eventually, but it may have even manifested here because they would tell him things and he'd say, I'd love it, and then it'd become time to shoot it and he'd hate it. So they were frustrated. That's all that I can tell you is that on the set, there's a lot of frustration about how to make this action work, and maybe some of these problems that we're talking about is just coming through on a problematic set that was underfunded with a star that didn't want to be doing what he was being asked to do. I don't disagree with you, Arnie, but I, again, I'm trying to put this in comparison with a franchise, with the movies that I've been covering already. I think that this is a step up here when we get things like the fish cannery that smuggles drugs in the fish. <laughs> Jeez. I mean, it's funny, right? I mean, it's, it's got some wit to it. It's silly. It's well shot. Yeah, no, I agree. I, again, this movie's going along pretty easily for me, just like Death Wish 3, but I do recognize that this is a step up, that we got a director here that's at least trying to do some interesting things, and the script, yeah, it's, it's definitely exploring more serious matters than 3 did, <laughs> even though it's failing. I do feel that like the one time that this movie lags for me and it should be an exciting moment is the oil field scene when the gangs finally come together to confront each other and Bronson is hiding out with that sniper rifle and starts shooting them and that gunfight breaks out and of course cars explode. It just seems so small scale. Yeah, it, I definitely got that sense of scale being a problem here. I also think that the whole point should be that Bronson is not pulling the trigger, that he is escalating things so that the other people are, are doing the shooting for him that he doesn't have to he can sit back and laugh watching what he's set up go off yeah he should just be there to kill the last person standing everybody else should kill everyone else the fact that he shoots the brother you know there's so many gunmen right there how stupid are these Romero's that they're going to have somebody shoot them from far away and be like oh my god Zachariah's men is shooting us <laughs> I do like that he gets to take out Zacharias again. These aren't Arnold films. He doesn't get a lot of good pun lines, if that's what you expect. But I do like when Zacharias is like, I don't even know the girl. I do, and shoots him. You know, it takes me back to that opening scene with, who the fuck are you? Death. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the way that he's going to do it. He Arnold had his own style. Stallone had his own style. This is Bronson's style. And I think it's even true in some of his best pictures. I mean, even Once Upon a Time in the West, he played the harmonica. He just plays a harmonica, yeah. Yeah, he doesn't have lines. <laughs> he doesn't do dialogue. Bronson don't read the script. He shows up. He exudes his cool... That's what you get here. But I didn't see the twist coming. You guys anticipated the Chinatown switcheroo? No, I did not. I didn't trust White, but I didn't see him as not being White. I thought, you know, maybe Mr. White had his own plans or was going to double-cross Paul, turn him into the authorities, use him as a newspaper article, an expose about the violence, but I didn't picture that the real Mr. White was overseas and that 
everything was just another drug lord. I did actually wonder what drug lord was going to come into the L.A. vacuum, because just because you kill the supply doesn't mean the demand goes away. Mm. It just means you've raised prices. Also, you have 30 minutes left in the film. Like, I suspected something was going on with White, whether he's a drug dealer, like you said, Arnie, he was going to use Paul as a story. I don't know. I just didn't trust him. But the fact that there's 30 minutes left in this movie and all the drug dealers are dead, I know there's someone coming in to fill in that vacuum. And when Paul goes to meet White and he gets in that limo and he's the only one there and the driver walks off it, it confirms it I'm like oh you better get out of that car real quick yeah exactly well now we know yeah it quickly reveals itself to be and they've also got this other dimension I thought what also might be a part of the climax is that we have the detective that wasn't crooked trying to avenge his partner he pretty much knows because his partner had figured out Kersey was the vigilante that he should be going out for him I like that dynamic I also like the fact that it's the act remember blue velvet he's the guy that finds the ear he's the cop that's like yep that's an ear (laughs) i like this guy he just makes me smile he's not a very good actor but i i kind of like him as the nerdy cop that wants to do right by his crooked friend i wish they'd done more with that character i wish that when all was said and done either he would have had some kind of epiphany to realize the whole corruption in the police force or Something to give this story closure because it it ends very unfulfilling. The character that I wish that they had done something more with is Karen. Because when I read what they wanted to do with her, I'm like, yeah, that would have been a real shock. You want to talk about something you wouldn't anticipate. The original plan for Karen is, yes, she gets kidnapped, brought into it, sees what's going on, survives the end, says, Paul, you're the vigilante. I want to be one, too. Let's go to San Francisco and kill thugs together. And they get married and go shooting. What a honeymoon. There was a great run of the Punisher where like, yeah, he does train a lady Punisher. (laughs) They never hook up, but it is a great run of that comic. Yeah, I mean, that would be, I mean, again, maybe that's not right for the tone of this movie, but there's more that they could do with all of these characters here. And Karen definitely, she just becomes bait. And I don't think I anticipated her getting killed here. I thought that if you survived the first act in the Death Wish movie, you're probably going to make it all the way to the end. But I was wrong. Yeah, no, I I was wrong. I had almost forgotten about Karen when she shows back up just to get kidnapped. But man, production level here just drops. Like there's, you know, at one point, Paul gets arrested by some fake cops and he's going to kick that shield between the driver and the passenger down cause him to crash you could see the ramp that they drive on (laughs) to flip that car and then he goes down into that garage to confront fake nathan white and his gang and we're supposed to think he's driving his car to go meet him but he's gotten out of the car it's an ambush somehow a car with no one in it's turning to go around this like (laughs) curved parking lot it's just it is very funny at times it does get to those death wish three levels if i hadn't known there was a death wish five to cover in a couple weeks i would might think that this is paul kersey's death though if he started this with a dream of him seeing himself dead in an underground parking lot this could be that dream fulfilled right this could be where he ends up on the ground I thought that that was a potential anyway, but no, we're going to end at a roller rink because I guess that's not totally passe in 1987. Oh, I I love that it's a smoke-filled roller rink. Like, all the skaters have evacuated the building, and it's like Paul and Nathan walking down this smoke-filled roller rink with the rainbow lights flashing and his big old grenade launcher. I'm loving the fact of all the arcade games. From the arcade at the beginning to the arcade here, I'm like, oh my god, Mr. Do, you know, just... 
taking me back. Spy Hunter! I was really hoping. I didn't care what humans took a bullet so long as those arcade games lasted. Oh, those arcade games got shot up, man. I know, I got felt bad. 1987, I feel like coin ops and roller skating, that was just... They're a little behind the times. There should be laser tag. Yeah, the video game bubble had burst by then. I was still playing coin ops in arcades in 87. I played Spy Hunter at the arcade. Oh, so was I, but but it had burst. Like, yeah. like 83 is when the whole Atari thing went upside down. I think it all died with the Famicom Nintendo Entertainment System 85-86. It was in the waning years. They would have had more fun in a laser tag arena. That would have been the new cool <laughs> thing to, to go with here, but... I think what we're all saying is this climax needed something more. It doesn't feel exciting enough. I did read the original plan, and I don't think it's that exciting, but the original plan for taking out the villain was to lock him in the men's room, and then Paul was going to somehow put all the cocaine in the air vent, and he would <laughs> snort himself to death. I'm not even sure how that would look, but I guess that was their idea of irony. Poetic justice, I mean... Live by the crack, die by the crack. <laughs> I, I do like how Nathan gets taken out. It is shocking. Like, Karen gets shot up for no reason. Like, none. What is with that? Yeah, pretty bad. But the, the fact that Paul just has his grenade launcher and shoots it right at Nathan, blows him up. <laughs> and fake Nate is like, I told her not to run. I told her I'd shoot if I ran. Like, that excuse is going to work. You don't kill the hostage when she's your only leverage. As soon as you kill the hostage. Especially when a man has a grenade launcher. <laughs> yeah, they take him out real good here. He's blown up real good. He's not coming back for part five. Yeah, there is another really bad jump cut to a dummy. <laughs> and what I think, look, I'm going to give this film credit above all the other ones. Because after this hilarious explosion of fake Nate, Detective Rayner shows up. Pulls a gun on Paul, and Paul's like, do whatever you have to, after Rainer says he's going to shoot. And I feel like, oh my gosh, we finally got one. Things have gotten so bad, Paul actually does have a death wish. I finally feel that in one of these <laughs> death wish films. Like, Paul really doesn't care at this moment if he gets shot in the back by this cop as he walks away. Yeah, my only disappointment was he didn't say, it's Chinatown. I mean, they've been referencing that movie <laughs> so much here. But it is kind of badass, the way that he just doesn't care. It was not about surviving to the end of this. It was about bringing about justice and he's had his justice it's a good point what more can he do at this point we know that there's one more bronson death wish but this feels like this could have been the end of the franchise but would it have been a happy ending jacob stewart where do you come down on the crackdown jacob you know these are firmly b movies and that, that's how i watch them that's how i'm rating them and that's how i want to review them like i wish they were a little bit more serious especially that first one we talked about that i feel like the crackdown oh man i was expecting this to be bad just like oh we're gonna do all this preachy preachy stuff about drugs and someone's gonna come in and shoot up all the drug dealers which that's what this movie is <laughs> They don't not do that. Yeah, but maybe because it's a new director, this one feels different than the last two did. It just, technically, it feels like some of the edits are real interesting, some of the shots are real interesting. The action is what it is. The problem is, it's Charles Bronson, and he's the problem in all of these, I feel. But I enjoyed this one I, more than I thought I would. It, it lags a little here and there, but for the most part, look, it's not a smart movie. It's not an adrenaline-packed movie, but again, it's a B-movie that goes down easy. So this is, I'm going to give this one a recommend. Stuart. I thought it was going to be the only one. I mean, I think you're right to challenge this 
series in this way. I mean, it's a bad movie. Let me be clear. I don't really personally recommend seeing Death Wish 4, but if you're watching the Death Wish franchise, I think you have to reward the fact that it has better twists in the storyline than the last couple. You have good handling of character. The director is better. The female lead is a better actress than what we had the last couple movies. There are incremental changes that make a world of difference. So yes, if you're going to watch a formula Charles Bronson shoots them all movie, I think that you have to give this a green arrow. If I gave Death Wish 3 a green arrow, or at least a brown arrow, an endorsement of some kind, I have to say that this is better. And so, I, even though I want to be clear, this is not a good movie, I think this is a pretty good Death Wish movie. You guys are talking me into a green arrow when I came in feeling this was definitely <laughs> a red. And my reason for coming in thinking this was a red is because I just walked away from this and I'm like, I don't care about this fucking movie. I watched it, and perhaps because it's the fourth in four weeks and I'm just becoming numb, perhaps because I felt the action was so re-goddamn-diculous with the explosions and the fakery that I wasn't able to get any joys out of it beyond almost parody, like Muppet Show Gonzo-level explosions, and I'm literally meaning the 1970s, early 80s. Yeah! Muppet Show, uh, that level of violence, and Charles Bronson sleepwalking through the role while the four million jangles in his pockets. My problem was, and the question I came into this was, is how does it compare to the others, and is it really worse where I've recommended, admittedly, brown and green arrows in equal measure, but I've given recommends of one sort or the other to each. Is this one bad enough that it's good? Is this one good enough that it's watchable? Or is it just monotonous? And you're right, compared to the movies that surround it, it's more of the same. So I guess it's a green arrow of if you can't get enough Death Wish, <laughs> here's more Death Wish. I think where you're coming down harder on the whole franchise than even on this installment here. I mean, really what it came down to me, these feel like films that were probably played a lot on Saturday afternoons on network TV or cable. And this is one, if it was on, yeah, I'd probably sit there and watch it at least through a couple commercial breaks. And that makes it a recommend for these B-movie Death Wish films. And there's a difference between having a movie on and watching a movie. And when I watch something here, you know, there's no digital distractions. It's me in a movie. I'm at home, but it might as well be in the theater. And... I'm trying to have this film engross me for its full hundred minutes in this case. And I just didn't feel engrossed. It's going to eke past with the very weakest of recommends. Because I did laugh at the poor production values at mm. some. So in certain ways, it's so bad, it's good. And in certain ways, it's actually good. I didn't really have a great time watching it. But, man, I, I'm feeling much like, I'm going back to an analogy Stuart used years ago about the frog that's in boiled water, that the temperature has been turned up on me in such a slow manner, I haven't realized that I'm cooking. <laughs> yeah, I don't want another one. I can be honest and say, I don't think I've ever seen Death Wish 5. It came really late. It comes out in the mid-90s, right before Bronson dies. He makes one more of these things. I haven't seen it. I don't have a lot of anticipation for it. But we're not going to get to it right away. The good news is we get to take a break. 
We have such sights to show you, or at least to deconstruct an audio for you. We'll tear your soul apart for the gold donors this Friday. My soul's torn apart because I kept holding out for a real remake for the series. And now I'm like, all right, let's just go to hell with the franchise and look at what it is. But a lot of movies in between and... There's going to be some surprises in there, I think. I was surprised, for example, Doctor Strange director Scott Derrickson. His first movie was Hellraiser 5. Yes, I agree. Superman's in this thing. Yeah, Henry Cavill is in, I think, part eight. He's in Hellworld. Yeah, it's incredible. Miss Langenkamp threatens to be in the 10th one. God, I hope they release that one. It will be a real contest, more than any kind of Cenobite fight. Who's worst, Ashley Lawrence or Heather Langenkamp? Ooh, they're so interchangeable, too. Ooh, it's re- I can't even tell them <laughs> apart, but it should be fun trying. I can tell you which one's nicer in person, and I will for gold donors. <laughs> All right, well, I don't know if I'm looking forward to the movies, but I'm looking forward to the conversation. And then for platinum donors going into the new year, what better way to ring in the new year than with a New Year's kiss from the Creeper? Who? Jeepers Creepers, our platinum level donation trilogy. Oh, whew. I thought you were talking about somebody else I didn't want to bring up. Yeah, my New Year's kisses are sometimes the Creeper, but you're just talking about the movies. (laughs) Yeah, not talking about a Weinstein. (laughs) (laughs) Well, good. Yes. Three Jeepers Creepers. I've seen one of them. I've seen all three. I went to the theaters for the third, and we can talk about that one-night experience. But next week, we will be back with Death Wish 5. Again, I feel like we need to say this every time. Yes, we were leading up to the Death Wish that got punted to next year. Mm. So we're going to do Death Wish 5, the last one of the Charles Bronson picks. And then after that, Death Sentence, the James Wan film based on the sequel book to Death Wish, starring Kevin Bacon. And because we want to get some Bruce Willis in here, after that, we're going to do 12 Monkeys. I don't know what the new Death Wish will be, but I'm looking forward to the 12 Monkeys conversation. Plus, because listeners requested it, they wanted a keepsake of 10 years of now playing the 10th anniversary DVD-ROM set bundles that are available all at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. Thank you for your support of our show. And come to the forums. Let us know what your Death Wish is. Let us know what you're hoping for with Death Wish 5, Death Wish the Reboot, or Death Sentence. Come on to the link from nowplayingpodcast.com. We hope to talk to you there. And Stuart, Jacob, thank you for joining me. Until next time, your death wish has been granted. Oh, I'll be back soon. It's not necessary. It is for me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Death Wish Retrospective Series. If they hadn't have broken us up, I would have killed you. Next time, you won't even see me coming. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Are you getting the most out of life? Are you satisfied, fulfilled, happy? For more movie review podcasts, visit the nowplayingpodcast.com archives. <laughs> oh, what a bummer, man. That was the worst fucking movie I've ever seen. There you'll find hundreds of film reviews, including Die Hard, John Wick, 
the Jason Bourne series, Kingsman, Machete, the Marvel Comics movies, and more. And come back each week for another new movie review. Hope you guys have a good time tonight. Enjoy yourselves, huh? You know where to come back to if you want some more. Now playing relies on listener support to keep operating. For our podcast's 10th anniversary, we have released over 150 donation podcasts through our Podbean page. I ain't known for my community spirit. Show me some money. Available there are series like The Matrix, the Quentin Tarantino films, Planet of the Apes, Jurassic Park, Aliens, and much more. Give me the money, homeboy. <laughs> Give me the money now. It's collection time, Charlie. <laughs> collection time. Links to our Podbean page are available from NowPlayingPodcast.com. I'm going to beg you, son of a bitch. Please. You can also join our Podbean crowdfunding campaign to help our show grow. Backers of $10 or more will receive exclusive bonus podcast reviews, including Lego Batman, Get Out, Galaxy Quest, Hook, The Warriors, and Coherence. A link to our patron page is at nowplayingpodcast.com forward slash donate. My heart bleeds a little for the underprivileged, yeah. Stick them in concentration camps, that's what I say. We want to especially thank our Podbean donors of $50 or more, Joseph Black, Jacob Parkins, Anders Marath, and David Billington. Well, that makes you a preferred customer. Also at NowPlayingPodcast.com forward slash book, you can order Now Playing's film review collection, Underrated Movies We Recommend. This book has 125 reviews about films you probably haven't seen, but you should. You're a writer. Write about it. Want to take part in the discussion? Join the Now Playing hosts at our forums where you and other listeners can give your thoughts on this movie review. The links to our forums is at nowplayingpodcast.com. Might amuse you, though. Being from New York, maybe you've never seen a club like this. You can also follow Now Playing on Google+, Facebook, and Twitter. There, the hosts post new episode announcements, movie reviews, and contests where you can win movies and soundtracks. Can we just all please... Be civilized for once before I kill somebody. You can also help out Now Playing by leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. A link to Now Playing's iTunes listing can be found at nowplayingpodcast.com. I'm so glad you wanted to come along. The more people that understand our work, the better. Now Playing's Death Wish series is produced by Arnie Carvalho. You're tough. Yeah, you really are. Just a matter of keeping busy, Sam. Now Playing's Death Wish series is edited by Heath and Arnie. The guard said you were here after midnight last night. Yeah, that's the way I work. Now Playing's Death Wish series credits announced by Brock. I underestimated O'Shea. It's not gonna happen again. The Death Wish films, all audio clips and music used are the property of the respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast has not been prepared, approved, or licensed by any entity that created or produced the well-known Death Wish films or novels. Now Playing is an independent movie review podcast with no affiliation with any company involved in the publishing, creating, or distribution of that film or book series. You're not thinking of going back to your old ways, are you? Is that such a bad idea? Let the cops take these guys down. 
You know, sometimes the law works. And sometimes it doesn't. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Venganza Media Incorporated. Some people would say that was an extreme position. I don't care. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2017, all rights reserved. And no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Whatever you little fucks think is important, ain't important. So stop! Stop it right now! Goodbye. No, I mean, but that's the running gag there, is they constantly recast Audrey and Rusty there. They did bring her back for Christmas Vacation to Cousin Eddie's Island Adventure. <laughs> oh, wow. She had time in her schedule for that, huh? <laughs> One day we'll cover that franchise. <laughs> no, uh, I guess we can't say no because everyone, our listeners love pointing out everything we review. Never say never. We did do Leprechaun. I, all bets are off. Once we say never, they want it more than ever. Yeah. When I see crack users on television, and I actually did work at a drug rehab center for a while. You did? I did. That's amazing. I know. There's the time that I was attacked by a staff member with a broom because they didn't know I was supposed to be there and thought I was stealing methadone. Oh, were you? No, I was working there. <laughs>